morning, I'm going to ask you if you open your Bibles to um, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It reads as follows. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We continue as we've been doing in our study of this epistle of James, and we find ourselves today in chapter 4. Last week we looked at um, the cause of worldliness, and James is writing about worldliness in the church. We looked at the consequence of worldliness found in verses 3 through 6, and today we're going to look at what James says is the cure to worldliness in verses 7 through 10. You know, the Apostle John, he tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and this is something that I think that every believer in Jesus Christ should heed. He tells us, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world there is defined as the cosmos, this uh, evil world system, the world system that goes against the things of God. John's admonition is that we're not to love it. We're not to set our affections upon it. We're not to place our emphasis upon it. We're not to desire. We're not to seek. Nor are the things of the world things that a believer should be giving his priorities to. As a matter of fact, John is so clear in this that he tells us this, that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a powerful statement. It's a statement that causes us as believers to examine ourselves and say, where do we love the world? Where are there elements where the world has priority in our life? See, the world draws men and women's attention and it draws it away from God. And it draws it away from Christ and the gospel. And as believers, our minds are to be set on the things of Christ. They're to be set on the things above. In Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 33, in Jesus' famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all things shall be added unto you. There's, there's the attention. There is the direction of kingdom living. It's not on the things of earth. It's not in the acquisition of the things of earth. It's not for the 70, 80, 90 years that we get on earth in light of eternity. Christ, his own words tell us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things shall be added unto you unto you. The Apostle Paul told the church at Colossae in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. 
there's a saying in the world today that, you know, someone could be so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. But what we actually see happening in this day is that we are so earthly-minded that many are no heavenly good. There's no value. Where is our affections? Our affections will determine our spirituality. If our affections are based on the things of the world and grabbing all the gusto we can get right now and coming and getting every full experience that the world has to offer with the idea that, well, when this this is all over, I go up, well, then we have a skewed view of Scripture. We are witnessing a concerning trend in the church today, increasingly embracing worldly practices to expand its influences. And unfortunately, this approach often results in the results in the church being seduced by the superficial attractions of the world. We look at its entertainment, its processes, its methods, and we think, oh, wow, that's immediately, immediately transferable to the world. And so what happens? People say the more we look like the world, the more we sound like the world, the more we speak like the world, that the world consequently would be attracted to us as Christians. But time and proof has shown it's the opposite. It's the opposite. What drew men and women to Jesus Christ? Were they drawn because he spoke like the Pharisees, dressed like the Pharisees, acted like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? That's not what drew men and women to Christ. What drew men and women to Christ? It was the difference in Christ. It was the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. What draws men and women to believers today? It's the difference, not the similarity Hey, even in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it's recorded that when Jesus spoke, that the crowds all said to each other, who is this one who speaketh not like the scribes and Pharisees? It was the difference. It was the difference in the disciples. It was the difference. What spoke more loudly? Was it the Apostle Paul's former testimony as a, as a persecutor of the church? Or was it the Apostle Paul in his new birth in Christ? If you were born again, if you were new in Christ, it is the difference. It is the holiness. It is the righteousness that will draw men and women to the Christ-likeness in you. And by the way, we don't walk around that with a haughty spirit. We don't walk around with a a holier-than-thou attitude, but neither do we capitulate to the world. Neither do we say, well, I'm going to do these things. No, we want to be different. And James is addressing this here in James chapter 4. He's addressing worldliness, a worldliness that exists in the early church, and he's calling it out, right? And so what we see, you know, here's a perfect example, by the way. These were two stories that were in the news within the last two or three years. The first story involved a pastor in South Carolina. He had a 25,000-person megachurch, and he had a meeting with the church, all 25,000 on a Sunday, and he asked every single one of them, if they would donate $1,000 to raise $250,000 so that he could buy his wife her Lamborghini. This is true. This is in the, it was in the news. And he said, 
The reason he had to give her a Lamborghini because there was an issue of discretion that he had, indiscretion that he had with another woman. Now, in the article, he swore there was no physical issue. It was just he was flirting with another woman. His wife got bad. So in order to settle the issue, he wants to give her a Lamborghini. And I remember reading this in the first thing, and I said, how much does this guy make that he can get a Lamborghini to give to his wife? Now, what's the, what's the problem there? Despite the indiscretion of sin and everything else that was going on, how did he seek to solve the problem? He didn't seek it with repentance. He didn't seek it with confession. He didn't seek it with making himself right to, with God. The thought was, give her this Lamborghini. Look at this. Isn't it great? The pastor's wife is driving around in a Lamborghini. I remember when I read the story, I said, Barbara, don't get your hopes up, kid. You ain't never going to have a Lamborghini. There was another story. This was a... She got her Volkswagen and she's like zooming all over town. There was another story that appeared about two years ago. This is true. Church in Ohio. They said, well, we're going to do baptisms today. Praise God. We're going to be doing baptisms in in the next month or so. We're going to be doing baptisms today. But we really want it to resonate with the community. We want to we bring the community out. So what did they do? They got a spiral water slide and put it in the church. And as the candidate for baptism went up to the water slide, ready to slide in, they said, here is so-and-so, and they're going to be baptized. And then they came down the water slide, Wee into a pool, and they were baptized. And the pastor commenting to the news about this said, we had more people on that Sunday than any other Sunday. Hey, go to Disney. You have more people on on Sunday than any other Sunday too. What's the thought process? The thought process is simply this. Let's look like the world. Let's make it entertaining. Let's make it fun. So the people that are going to come in, but the one thing that gets compromised in all of this thinking is the gospel. Is the gospel, right? That is the one thing that gets compromised. So by the way, in that scene with the baptism, the article reported that they were singing, splish, splash, I was taking a bath. So that was the music that they were playing as the people were going down the slide and splashing in. And imagine there, there's another pastor that said, praise the Lord, you know, you're baptized. Not only is that worldly, but that is heretical. Not only is it heretical, but it is abominable because it makes a mockery out of the ordinance of baptism that came to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the worldliness that is pervading the church in our day. And as we study the epistle of James, it becomes readily apparent, doesn't it, that there was a worldliness that was coming into the church there, and here is the admonition of James to do that. Listen, we can never be in a position where we could afford to water down Christianity. Listen, even if the culture doesn't want to hear it, truth is truth, regardless of whether you agree or you don't agree. 
And as believers, we are called to be heralders of the truth. You know what a herald did in the old days and ancient times? The heralds were sent to different villages and towns. And when the king had to make an announcement, whether it was the birth of an heir or that the king had died or whatever it is, or he was imposing a new tax, the herald would go into the center of the town and go, hear ye, hear ye, right? The king has thus declared. He would read an ordinance, it would be posted, and he would move on to the next town. As followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're heralders too. But what we herald is what? The gospel. And we proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's a package deal. You don't get one without the other. It's a package deal. Christ is indeed Savior and Lord. And that's the message that we go out proclaiming. James in his epistle has provided insight into the issue of worldliness within the church, including its consequence. And so today, he prescribes what is the cure for worldliness in the church. And I'm going to tell you something. This has applicability to those who think they're saved and are not. This has applicability to those who know they're not saved. And let me tell you something, believers. This has applicability to believers as well. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4 of the epistle of James. James starts out by saying, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I often hear, we've been going through spiritual warfare on Tuesday night Bible study, right? And I've talked a lot about how a lot of people say, well, I rebuke the devil, I say this, I say that. This is one of these that are used as Christian incantations. A brother is going through, a, a brother or sister may be going through a good, a hard time, and somebody say, well, brother, just submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he's going to flee. But contextually, what is James speaking about? He's speaking about those that are in the world. He's saying, look, you want a cure for worldliness. Here's the cure. Submit yourself to God. That's the first thing you have to do. As a matter of fact, if you look over the next four verses, James uses ten what we call imperatives. Imperatives in the Greek are commands. That's what they are. So think of an, an imperative as do this. It's a command. Do this. Major Mike knows a lot about commands, right? When Mike, when you had the men under your command, you said, do this. They didn't come back to you and say, why do I have to do that? I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. When Mike gave a command, his men obeyed. Do this. This needs to get done. It's the same thing in the Greek. And the first imperative that James gives here is submit. Submit. And to whom are you submitting? Submit yourself to God. It's used in a tense that calls for a decisive and an urgent break with worldliness. These are not, and I want to repeat this, these are not suggestions from James. These are commands. And what the command is for those who are living double life, one life in the world, one life in the church, the command is this, submit, submit to God. Verse 7 powerfully encourages members of the church to turn to Christ for salvation. And James delivers this message, by the way, unambiguously. 
There's no confusion. He's laying it out. Submit yourself to God. And he uses the phrase later on, enemy of God, we saw in verse 4. And he uses the word sinner in verse 4. He lays out these Ten Commands for sinners to repent. And particularly those that are indecisive, those that are wavering, those that are partially committed to Christ. The command goes forth to submit to God. And they can be, and we see here this word submit, and I want to be crystal clear with this. This word submit means simply this I put myself in subjection. I put myself in subjection. Just think of it for a moment right now. James approaches what the cure for worldliness and the cure is submission. I talk to a lot of people, a lot of people who, like you and I, struggle many times in the world, but what I find many times of people who profess the name of Christ and are struggling in the world is that usually what you find, many times what you find is there's a lack of submitting to God. You know how we talk about God as faith as being trust, complete trust in the person and in the plan and in the purpose of God? I've probably made that statement 25, 30 times. Faith is complete trust in the person of God. I worship a holy God, a God who cannot lie, a God who cannot manipulate, a God who cannot mislead me, a God I can put all of my trust in, so therefore I submit myself completely and wholly to him. I can trust him, and because I can trust him, that says I can trust his plan for my life, and I can trust his purposes. Because why? Romans 8.28 tells us what? It tells us that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Proverbs tells us that the steps of the righteous, they're ordered by God. So I can have complete trust in the plan and in the purpose and in the person of God. And so if I can have those things, then I can trust God in every step of my life, right? It would seem pretty logical, right? But what about when the plan of God goes contrary to my desire? What about when the plan of God is calling me to surrender? What about when the plan of God says that I have to die to myself and live for Christ? Well, invariably, it's going to produce a conflict, will it not? Because now, what? What the spirit desires and what the flesh desires are antithetical to one another. They're in direct opposition to one another. And that forces conflict. How is that conflict resolved? It's only to resolve one way. Submitting to the Lord. Submitting to God. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He submitted to the will of the Father that every word he spoke was ordained from the Father. He submitted to the will of the Father that it meant death on a cross. It meant his dishonor, but the Father be glorified. Jesus submitted fully 
and completely to the will of the Father. What does God call every person to do? We are all to submit to God. We are all to live in subjection underneath God. And it is as we delight ourselves in the Lord that he will give us the desire of our heart. I've heard a lot of preachers preach that, right? They talk about, well, whatever you want, God's going to give you because God delights in giving you the desire of your heart. But I'm going to say something to you. If the desire of your heart is anything other than God, Christ, and the gospel, then you're already on a worldly track. As a matter of fact, the whole secret to that verse, delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of the heart is this. This is it. If you delight in the Lord, if you take your pleasure in the Lord, if your pleasure is in Christ, if your pleasure is in God, if you do those things, guess what God's going to give you? The desire of your heart. What's the desire of your heart? It's the Lord. That's the whole pretense of that verse. Delight thyself in the Lord. He will give you the desire of the heart. The desire of the heart is God. How many of you today say that the desire of my heart is indeed God? Lord, you can take all this other stuff, but the desire of my heart is God. That I want to know him. I want to live him. I want to be full of the spirit. I want the fullness and the power and the dwelling and the presence of God in my life. I want it not only intellectually, but I want it experientially. I want God to pour forth his fullness in me. Now, isn't it only logical, isn't it only logical now that if indeed that is the case, and it is the case, isn't it only logical that then we can, and then only we can then resist the devil and he will flee? Is the devil going to run around with a spirit-filled man? Oh, he's going to snipe at him. He may, you know, you know, try to kick him, try to do different things. But what happens to the spirit-filled man or woman when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Guess what? The devil has no authority over them. None. None at all. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. The devil has no authority over any child of God. Only God. God is the father of the sons and the daughters of God. God is the Father. God ordains our path. But as believers in Christ, as we come to that place of submission, that's where we find that strength that comes from God. And it is that strength. It's not the same. Listen, you could be oppressed to the enemy and you're going to say, I'm resisting the devil, I'm resisting the devil, and the devil may not flee. Because I'm going to tell you something. There's been a lie sold in the church for the last 70, 80 years, and the lie is this. If you say it, it's true. No, it's not. You can say all you want that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If your heart is wrong, you're not in Christ. You're not in Christ. It just is what it is. Jesus made this statement to the Samaritan woman. He said, a day is coming and now is where those who want to worship God, those who seek to worship God are going to worship him what? In spirit and falsehood? No. 
in spirit and part-time? Hey, I go to church on Sunday? No. What do he say? That those who are going to seek to worship God are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he adds, for such are the ones the Father seeks to be his worshipers. In spirit and truth. You know what the end of the cure for worldliness is? Submission to God in spirit and in truth. We come to the Lord and we submit. And it's when we submit we resist the devil. And you know, for those that are in the church whom James is writing, it's clear that they're not believers because in verse 4 he uses terms like enemy. An enemy is, is never a term for a believer. So he's writing to those, now listen to this, he's, he's writing to those that have a little bit of religious orientation. You know the most dangerous thing? The most dangerous thing is just a little bit of knowledge. With a little bit of knowledge. People think they can do all kinds of things. James is writing to those. What is he saying? Submit yourself. The command to submit is in the positive tense. It indicates a necessity for a voluntary act. This is a reconciliation. I heard... Now I must do. That's what it is. I heard, now I must do. It's a voluntary act. And so to submit requires taking proactive measures and making difficult decisions. The sinner must come without hesitation or preconditions. And it also involves a negative action. And the negative action is a denial of self. We deny ourselves, as the Lord stated in Matthew 16, 24. Let him deny himself. Listen to Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to the disciples, listen to these words. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow, it, follow me. Notice. A negative action, denial, followed by a voluntary positive action of willingly taking up the cross and following Christ. It's not enough to say that I love Jesus. That's not enough. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We must... Come to the Lord as Savior and Lord. And believers delight in the Lord. Our enemy here, notice in verse 7, is called the devil. The Greek word diabolos. It means a slanderer, a false accuser. Someone who is seeking to condemn and sever a relationship. That's our enemy. That's our enemy. He's a slanderer. He goes around and says, you know, my brother or sister, this one or that one, thou, man, if you just let me at them, they'll deny you. And he's always getting you trying to blaspheme God. What does the devil do? Jesus told us the devil comes to steal, kill, and what? And destroy. And he is actively working to sever people's relationships. But James tells us, 
that if we're to submit to God, if we have that first action right, if we are full with the presence of God, if we're full of the Word of God, by the way, that's another thing. Many people are not full of the Word of God. So when tragedy comes into their life, when difficulties come into their life, there's no word that they can draw on. And consequently, they find themselves afloat, wandering and not knowing what to do. But if we are full of the presence of God, if we are full of the Spirit of God, if we are full of the Word of God, then we have victory over the enemy. So the first thing that we do is we submit to God. Here's the second thing that we do. We sanctify the heart. Verse 8, James continues, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the third command of James. Draw near to God. Be reconciled to God. Salvation involves not only submission to to the Lord Jesus Christ, but a desire to come to know him experientially and personally and the person of God. I've made no bones about this. My heart's desire is to know him. My life's verse is Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. You can look it up later. But I love where it says, let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands me that he knows, he knows and he understands me. What greater desire is there than for us to come and draw near to God? And for those who are strange, for those who are far off, for those who are dealing with the same sins that they have been dealing with all their life, despite the multitude of professions, the word of God would say, draw near to God. Submit yourself, draw near to God. And what is the response if we draw near to God? What is he going to do? He's going to draw near to us. Come on, everybody's got to want the Lord to draw near to us, right? I think part of the problem in today's today's environment is many people want the blessings of God, but they don't want God. Oh, I don't want you to tell me what to do, God. I want my own life. I want to have fun. I'm young. I'm this. I'm that. Whatever the reason. I'll serve you when I get old. And sad thing, many people don't reach old age. Draw near to God. He's going to draw near to you. Spiritual indifference. Listen, this this is the cancer of today. Spiritual indifference to God, to Christ, and to the things of God. This is the cancer. This is the malignancy in the church. Indifference. And spiritual indifference to Christ. You know what it produces? It produces hypocrisy. I believe this, but I live differently. I believe that Christ is Lord, but I live my own life, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. And usually what happens with spiritual indifference is that people get angry when somebody says, hey, you need to repent. You need to live what you're saying that you believe. They get angry. Nobody tell me like that. I believe what I'm going to believe and nobody's going to tell me any different. 
Listen, the Bible has dealt with spiritual indifference going back to the beginning of time. Prophet after prophet after prophet preached out to Israel about their coldness of heart to the Lord. Here's just one verse. Isaiah 29, 13. Listen what the prophet says to Israel. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Uh, that's a powerful statement there. Listen to those words again. They give lip service. They've removed their hearts. And all that they do, they do by rote. They do by tradition. It's automatic. There's no heart. Let me tell you something. Everything in the Christian life is about the heart. Salvation begins here, not here. In the heart. There's a reason why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Why? Because what you have in will come out. If vileness comes out and all these other different things, there's an issue of the heart that is sincerely wrong. It's not, no, you, you can't take the tact to say, well, God knows my heart. He knows how I am. You know, yes, he does. You should tremble in fear at that thought. Don't ever get comfortable with it. God isn't this benign, benevolent grandfather where the kids are all running crazy under his feet. He goes, oh, leave them alone. They're just kids. He told Israel, you worship me with your lips. You know how we would say it? Talk is cheap. You know how you see somebody who professes one thing but you see him living another life and instantaneously you go, that person's such a hypocrite. They always say this, that, and the other thing, but look at the way they live. They do this, that, and the other thing. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ even said the same thing. In Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9, the Lord says this. These people, quoting Isaiah, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. I know a lot of people that are really sound in doctrine. They love to boast in their doctrine. And I love doctrine. I put a preeminence on doctrine. If you don't have doctrine, you don't know what you believe. But I know so many people who could quote chapter and verse, but their hearts are far from God. As we always say, we want to be a people that know our God, and are known by our God. And so the, for the one who says, I accept Jesus, I do this, but whose hearts are far from God. They show a general indifference toward the things of the church. They show a general indifference toward the things of Christ. Prayer is relegated to 911 calls. Oh God, I really need this. Keep me safe. Listen, it's essential for all of us, all of us, to read these warnings with, 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 with soberness and seriousness, to sanctify our heart. This is the whole point. Sanctify the heart. He says here, 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's drawing the imagery of Psalm 24 that that we just had in Scripture reading. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. And what? And a pure heart. Listen, God not only calls that for sinners, but God calls that for believers. Believers got to consecrate themselves to God. Believers have to come to the place where we have to say, Lord, consecrate me, sanctify my heart to you, Lord. Salvation is an issue, not of the mouth, but of the heart. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, our words really reflect what's in there. One can come closer to the living, holy, righteous God through salvation, bringing about holy transformation in one's life if one submits, if one draws near to God. You'll find a spiritual life that will blow your mind. Why? Because it's a transformational life. It's a regenerated life. It is made new in Christ Jesus. He goes on and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. James gives the the impression of the Old Testament ceremonial cleansing as one walked into the temple and cleansed themselves in the bronze labor. He uses a term here called double-minded. He says, cleanse your Cleanse, purify your heart. You double-minded. It's an interesting word in the Greek. The word double-minded means two-souled person. You have two souls. One in, one out. It speaks of a person with two minds or two souls, and it, 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 it demonstrates a person who vacillates, a person who wavers. You know, like I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. It's the fence sitter. Remember what Jesus said? No man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other. You can't sit on the fence in the kingdom of God. There is no neutral in the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus told the Laodicean church, I'm going to spew you from my mouth. I'm going to regurgitate you from my mouth. Why? Because you are neither hot nor cold. You know what that is? That's indifference. That's living to please myself. That's having Jesus Christ as an additional component to my already good life. And Jesus never plays the role of supporting actor. And Jesus never takes second place. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Now, you got a problem with that, take that up with the Lord. He's the one who said it. He also went on to say that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Either it's good or it's bad. And so we as a people have to say to ourselves, well, where are we sanctifying our hearts to God? Now, I want to be crystal clear. We're not talking about sinless perfection. Right? So there is no sinless perfection. But what we are talking about is consistency in life. That's what we're talking about. The best Christian that you could 
ever think of sins. If you want to put the Apostle Paul at the top of that list, well, maybe the Apostle Paul's the best Christian. What did the Apostle Paul say about himself? Wicked man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The difference is the believer's life is not characterized and dominated by sin. Here James calls for the the people to sanctify their hearts, to stop being double-minded, to stop playing in the world. James would say of these people, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.2, that they are those who are always learning and learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. One of my favorite writers is Bishop J.C. Ryle, another dead guy. And in his book, Holiness, which I would suggest all Christians read, and it's not an easy read, I'm just being honest with you. He writes these words. Listen to the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle. The true Christian is the one whose religion is in his heart and life. It is felt by himself in his heart. Now notice this. It is seen by others in his conduct and life. He feels his sinfulness, his guilt and badness and repents. He sees Jesus Christ to be that divine Savior whom his soul needs and commits himself to him. He lives a new and holy life, fighting habitually against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ himself is the cornerstone of his Christianity. Is Christ the cornerstone of your Christianity? Is Christ the anchor of your Christianity? Do you go to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you live in holiness? You probably say, well, I could never live in holiness. You're absolutely right. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit? He conforms you into the image of Christ. Is Christ the cornerstone? In today's world, it's unfortunate to frequently encounter people who profess to follow Christ, yet their deeds contradict their words. James stresses the significance of sanctification, which necessitates committing oneself to purity and conforming to God's desire. How does that happen? By submitting yourself to God, by resisting the devil and allowing the devil to flee, by drawing near to God and he will draw near to you and sanctify and get him rid of all the garbage. Listen, we live in a world of garbage. If we wore all white clothes and we went into the world and came home at the end of the day, all of those clothes would be stained with dirt and mud and the crud of sin. It's around us. You don't have to go looking for it. It finds you. So we see the first thing that we do is submit. The the second thing we do is sanctify our hearts. Here's the third thing. We solemnly repent. Look at verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. In this verse comes four additional commands, four additional commands imperatives remember the imperative is do this do this here's the cure he's given the cure for worldliness do this and here it comes be miserable oh man that doesn't sound like fun 
I don't know many people sit around and listen to a message on being miserable, right? I wake up and I'm miserable. <laughs> but this is not the misery that he's talking about. He's talking about mourning after sin. Consecrating your heart. If you're drawing near to God, if you're washing your hands, if you're purifying yourself, you're going to come to a crossroad where you meet sin. What do you do? You recognize it, you acknowledge it, and you what? You mourn and you repent and you bring it to the Lord. It's misery over one sin and it's misery because it's against the holy God. The second thing. You know, um, let me take a step back there. You guys know that Martin Lloyd-Jones is definitely one of my, probably, it's hard to say, but he's there at the top. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a very simple statement that all of a sudden earlier this year really rang upon me in its profoundness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the nearer a man gets to God, the greater he sees his sin. The nearer a man gets to God, the greater he sees his sin. And that's truth. Because the Holy Spirit is always at work convicting themselves. Salvation entails surrendering oneself to Christ and serving God above all else. We got to get to that place. To the double-minded, to the one who has one foot in the world, one foot in the church, it's not going to come about on its own. You're not going to work your way there. You could feed the poor until you're blind in the face, and I'm not negating that. But the point is, unless you're submitting to God, unless you're drawing near to God, you'll never know the fullness and the power of what it means to be in Christ and the joy and the fellowship of that. He says, be miserable, mourn, weep, cry out, lament. Separation from Christ leads to sorrow and regret for wrongdoing. It's not just an enhancement, but it's a total substitution for one's way of life. Listen, Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Listen to Paul's word. I crucified myself with Christ. You know, he's using that word literally in light of a crucifixion. What did a crucifixion what did it make a certainty? There's two certainty. One certainty. You're going to die. And Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. And therefore, my life I no longer live. The life I live is Christ in me. Is Christ in you the life that you live? Is Christ in me the life that I live? In these commands in verse 9, be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. That's all about repentance. Repent, repent, repent for those who have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. 
We solemnly come to repentance. And if I could add this, I would add this. Repentance is not one act, but rather as believers, we live lives of repentance. Not to gain God's favor, because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away and everything has become new. Everybody likes that verse, right? And they like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Everybody likes that verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should, should boast. But everybody forgets the 10th verse there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. Why were we saved? We were saved for good works that God had purposed that we walk in them. And if it is God who purposes it, God is the one who bring it about. So here he tells those, you want a cure for worldliness? Solemnly repent. And here's the last point. We submit, we sanctify, we solemnly repent, and we surrender ourselves. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humbling oneself means showing reverence and submission to God. We show that reverence. It's a similar act of respect. You know, a similar act is respect. When, we see, when we're in the presence of royalty, when we're in the presence of a monarch, where it's customary, even today, if you saw the uh, coronation of, 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 of King Charles in England, what do they do? They bow. You see the ladies curtsy. And it is an insult if you were to stare that monarch, monarch directly in the eye. It means to make low, to humble yourself. With the believer... This happens by being dependent upon the Lord. Now, here's the most amazing thing. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this king begs us. He begs us, the believer, he begs us to come into the throne room. And he says, you can come with boldness. That means we don't have to come with the, with the cowering, but we could come, we could speak. As a matter of fact, it says to make our requests known and find grace and mercy and help in time of need. Yes, what a God is this? What manner of kings is this? He doesn't say, hey, you're saved, live as you want, it doesn't matter because you got the ticket out of hell. No, what does he say? He says, come. Come in submission. Come in humility. Come. It's emptying ourselves before holy, righteous, and gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James already told us in verse 4 that God is what? He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now in verse 10, he tells those in the church to humble themselves in the presence of the Lord. The call to salvation is a call to humility, repentance, contrition, and faith in Christ Jesus.
Now, I mentioned in the beginning that this passage speaks specifically to those who were the worldly in the church. And what, he, what is he doing? He's giving them a gospel call. Come, come, submit yourself to God. Draw near to God. Cleanse yourself. Sanctify yourself. Come, come, come. Surrender. But as a believer, I believe that there's three essential elements that we should abide by. These are three principles, three applications that we could apply to ourselves. First, as believers, I believe we must submit ourselves to God constantly and to God's will and God's purpose in our life. We must approach the Lord daily and acknowledge his grace and mercy toward us. As Christians, we are blessed to have received such magnanimous grace, undeserved grace, and it's our responsibility to honor him. What's the greatest act of obedience? Is the, the greatest act of love and devotion is obedience. We have that responsibility. I mean, did you ever stop and consider how fortunate, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, seriously, have you ever stopped and considered how fortunate you are to be a child of God? And I'm sure there's no one in here who could raise their hand and say, I deserve it. I deserve that grace. Have you ever been in awe of the grace of God and the salvation that was bought to you on Calvary? It's a comforting feeling to know that every morning you wake up, you are not under the judgment of God. Your sin has been judged, and you didn't pay an ounce toward it, but it was all poured out on an innocent Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, in submission, resist the devil. Resist the devil. He will flee. God's mercies have afforded grace and power to resist him firmly in the Holy Spirit. Hey, there's a reason why the scriptures say that salvation is the power of God. It's God's enabling power. And as the Apostle Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Thirdly, as a believer, I know that I can consciously approach God and be sure that he also draws near to me. It's a beautiful truth to know that the living God, the holy God, the only God will be close to me and I can relish his presence while I live on this earth. And I mean that literally. If we are walking right with Christ, if we live our lives according to his word, 
If we have been born again and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you know what the sweetest experience is? It's not watching the baseball game on TV. It's not going to the beach. It's not going to Disney on a nice day. The sweetest, sweetest moment you can enjoy is in the presence of God. The fellowship and the communion with God. I walk right with God. Having a clean conscience and knowing I walk right with God. It's not knowing I'm perfect. I'm not perfect, but I can walk right with God because my sins have been atoned for and I love him and I'm demonstrating to him how much I love him through my obedience to him and his fellowship and his presence. And I'm going to tell you something. Many people don't know about the presence of God. Many people get alone with God in prayer, but they don't experience the presence of God. And it is the most outrageously beautiful, glorious moments that as a believer you could experience. And how I desperately covet that. And how I desperately desire that for everyone. That you too would know. That you would know experientially the fullness and the power of God. Listen, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, when we talk about fullness of the Holy Spirit, we're not just talking figurative language here. We're talking literal language. We see so little power in the church today because so many people are not filled with God's presence. Now, if that's you here today, you can know the presence of God. If you're an unbeliever, if you're one of those people with one foot in the world, one foot in the church, I don't even have to tell you anything. If you listen to the sermon, you heard, submit yourself to God. You heard, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You heard, purify your hands and wash yourself and cleanse your heart, you double-minded. And you heard, Humble yourself before God. If that's you, what would prevent you from doing that today? You might have enough information to say, yeah, Christ died for my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But your life may not be full of the power and the presence of God. Would you make today the day that you repent and you cry out to God? And you say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you confess your sins before God and you put your faith and trust completely and entirely upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And you have faith in the person and the plan and in the purpose of God. You will know new life and you'll experience Christ like you never knew you could experience him. And believer, to all of us who are followers of Christ, let us, we, let us ourselves today consecrate ourselves to Christ. Bow before him. Draw near to him. Let us never stop drawing near to him. And get to that place where we submit ourselves entirely and we say, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go and whatever you have in my life. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.